Star Wars? Who saw, who saw the Star Wars movies? Remember those movies? 1977, I think it was, that the first Star Wars movie was made. I was six years old. But the Star Wars movies, along with the Raiders of the Lost Ark, those two series of movies, they shaped an entire generation of kids. But if you remember the Star Wars movies, there was one phrase that defined Star Wars. What's that phrase? Let the force be with you. What does that mean? What is the force? Well, the force was this invisible, metaphysical sort of power that maybe all people had it, or maybe just the Jedi warriors had it. But if a Jedi warrior could get in touch with the force, could if if he could tap into this force, then the force would enhance his mental abilities or his physical abilities. And so this force within him was a powerful thing if he could learn how to make contact with it, how to tame it, how to feed from it, and how to connect to it. And this force was, was really a driving concept for all the Star Wars movies. In the first movie, Obi-Wan Kenobi says to Luke Skywalker, he says that the force that's within us, it penetrates us, it surrounds us, and it holds the galaxies together. Wow. Holds the galaxies together. That's an idea that approaches upon the idea of an invisible God, doesn't it? And that's completely by design. You see, George Lucas, who was the creator of Star Wars, would later on, he would say this, he would say that he put the force in the Star Wars movies in order to awaken in young people a sense of spirituality. Not so much in that they would adhere to a certain religious practice or a certain God, but so that they would be awakened to the divinity within them. Wow. See, George Lucas understood something about humans, something that Paul also understood. He understood that all humans need to know their Creator God and they need to worship Him. And all humans seek to do just that. We're in Acts chapter 17 this morning. We're studying the book of international missions, the book of cross-cultural evangelism. And we come this morning to Acts chapter 17. Now you remember at the, la- at the end of the previous passage that uh, Paul, this mis- missionary team of three, has now separated. Paul has gone ahead of them to Athens. This missionary team, which started out as two, it then grew to three, it then grew to four, now it, then it went back down to three, and now Paul has gone on ahead of them. It started out, Paul and Silas, then Luke and Timothy later on joined them. They've been kicked out of every place they've gone to. They've been kicked out of Lystra. They've been kicked out of Derby. They've been kicked out of Philippi. They've been kicked out of Thessalonica. They've been kicked out of Berea. And now, Silas and Timothy are still in Berea with a new church that's just been planted there. And Paul has been sent on ahead because Paul has to get out of Berea. He's been sent on ahead now to Athens. And that's where we'll pick up in verse 1 of chapter 17. Paul is in Athens and he makes this 300-mile journey across the sea to Athens and he is here waiting for them. The beginning of verse 16 tells us he's waiting in Athens. So what would you do if you were waiting in Athens? If you had time to kill in Athens, Greece, what would you do? You would do the same thing that I'm sure the Apostle Paul did. Take in some of the sights. Right? Athens is a destination place. People today still flock 
Athens, tourists. People take to, uh, uh, cruises there. There's a magnificent ruin and culture there to see, even to this day. The same thing was true in Paul's day. You see, Athens was at the height of its um, grandiosity five centuries before Christ. So 600 years ago, Athens was the biggest and the grandest it would ever be. And so even when Paul is here, there's a lot of history to see, a lot of culture to see, a lot of sights to see, and he's taking in the sights and he's taking in the culture. And while he's doing this, something happens to him. Uh, while he's waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. And this word provoked, it, it also means to convulse or to have convulsion. So literally, Paul was moved in his spirit that it was, it was all though, almost as though he was having these spiritual convulsions because he was so appalled by what he sees. You see, we, uh, Luke goes on to tell us that he saw that the city was full of life. Archaeologists will tell us that the ancient city of Athens had as many as 30,000 idols in the city. So everywhere you looked, you could not look anywhere in the city of Athens and not be looking at some sort of a statue of an idol or some sort of temple to an idol or some sort of visual reminder of the prevalent idolatry that was in that culture. So Paul sees all of this and he's so overwhelmed in his spirit by the bondage to sin, the slavery to sin that's all around him, that he's literally convulsed in his spirit. He's provoked. Also, Paul, you know him well enough to know that he's not one to just kind of sit around. He gets down to business in verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout person. Okay. Be there. So Paul gets to work spreading the gospel, preaching the gospel. He reasoned in the synagogue. Same, same word that Luke used for, uh, to describe. Paul's activities in Thessalonica in the previous passage. He's making, he's arguing with the Jews in the synagogue that it is entirely reasonable to believe in a suffering Messiah. He's making belief in Jesus reasonable for them to hold to. He's explaining, he's taking their questions, he's dialoguing, he's answering their questions. He reasons with the devout Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day and with those who happen to be there. So he's not just in the synagogue, but he's also in the synagogue and in the marketplace. Now, we assume in the marketplace, he runs into this next two, group of pe- two groups of people from verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So assuming that the Epicureans and the Stoics weren't in the synagogue, Paul met with them in the marketplace, and they converse with Paul. They hear Paul preaching his gospel, and they begin to converse with him. So it's, it's worth our time to just spend a moment or two to understand a little bit about who the Epicureans and who the Stoics were. They're described as philosophers. Philosophers, that's a word. Philosophy, it's a word that just means the love of knowledge, the love of learning. Philosophers today are people that are just very learned people. And uh, not everything that they've learned is necessarily directly applicable to life always. They're just, it's the love of learning. It's, it's someone who genuinely feeds off of the acquisition of knowledge. That's a philosopher. So there's two types of people that are called philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, the Epicureans and the Stoics um, were very much different from each other. The Epicureans, they were followers of a guy named Epicurus. And what the Epicureans believed, if they were, if, if they were around today, we would call them existentialists. Now, an existentialist, that's just a long, fancy word that describes somebody who believes that what you see in this life is all there is. 
that what you can see, feel, taste, and touch is all that there is to life. That there is no afterlife, there's no greater spiritual purpose, but what you see around you, that, that is all that there is to life. And so if all, that you, all that, that you see and all that you experience in this life, if that's all there is in life, then what's the point? What's the purpose of life? If they were, if they were right, then what would be the purpose of life? The point of life would be to enjoy it, wouldn't it? If this is all there was, then that would be the whole point. To maximize pleasure, minimize pain to minimize our suffering, and to make the most of life while we're here. If this life is all there is, then the whole point of that would be to maximize our pleasure and minimize our pain while we're here. So that's what they believed. They were existentialists. They believed that there was nothing beyond this life, no afterlife to look forward to, no greater spiritual purpose, but instead, our purpose in life is just to simply make the most of it while we're here. They're very similar to... People um, around the 19th century, 18th century, that we sometimes call deists. Many of our founding fathers were deists. Benjamin Franklin was an example. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. Deists believed that there, there was a God that created everything, but that God had nothing to do with our world. He created everything, put our world into existence, and now he's, we can't know Him, we can't talk to Him, He doesn't interact with our world. And so basically, we're just sort of on our own because even though we're created, our Creator has nothing to do with us. So deism was very close to the Epicurean belief, existentialism. You know any Epicureans today? You know any Epicureans? I know tons of them. Because today they're better known as the average American who believes that this life, that what we see is all there is. Yeah, there's, there's probably a Creator God and we're probably created by Him and this world was made by Him. But this life is about what I can make of it. What I can do. The, the, the maximizing of my pleasure, the minimizing of my suffering, that is what life is all about. And that, that what I think would describe probably the average American. So you and I, we know plenty of practicing Epicureans today. Many of whom are in the church, many of whom are not in the church. But we all know tons of people who live this way. So that's the first group, the Epicureans. The second group, Stoics. Now the Stoics, they were cut from a completely different cloth than the Epicureans. The Stoics believed that there was one God and that that one God was everywhere, but that's not the same thing as belief in our Christian God who is omnipresent. The Stoics would have been what we would call today pantheists. Now pantheists, that's another fancy word to describe somebody that believes in a system that, well, quite frankly, it's, it's a little bit more difficult to put it into words what they believe. But the pantheist or the Stoic believes that there is one God that's everywhere, but that God is also everything. And that's the difference. A Stoic believed God is the universe. And the universe is God. And all parts of the universe are parts of God. And they're all interconnected with one another. And so a tree is part of God. A rock is part of God. A river is part of God. An animal is part of God. And we are part of God. And we're all interconnected in this great big universal system of divinity. It may sound really strange to you, but 
Believe it or not, there are tons of people that believe that same way today. It's basically today it's called New Age thinking. There's nothing new about it. It's been around for thousands of years. But New Age thinking is very closely related sometimes with, um, with the idea of karma and reincarnation. That the good you do in this life now will come back to you in the next life or the bad that you do in this life now will come back to you in the next life. Because you know we're all just part of this great big system and we're going to live this life and after this life is done, then we'll come back as something else and keep on living this system because we're all part of this grand idea of this universal God. This universal divinity. Um, sometimes it, it really borders on some of the, the extreme forms of environmentalism today where, um, or extreme uh, forms of animal rights today where, where some people believe that animals have the same rights as humans or, or some people believe that the universe has a soul or, or nature has a feeling. Um, the idea of Mother Nature is a very stoic idea. The idea that, that Mother Nature is this, this being that has feelings and has a soul. And we're all part of Mother Nature. You see how it's all kind of interconnected together. Um, evolution is a stoic idea. The idea that the universe is... Uh, somehow able to evolve itself. Life is able to evolve itself because we're all part of this grand deity. Again, this is, this is just simply New Age thinking. And um, it may sound strange to you, but I promise you that you know someone who thinks in this way. I have encountered people in the church who think this way, who think... Um, I've known people in the church who believe that they have lived past lives and that they're going to come back and live some other different life in the next life. So this, this type of thinking is more widespread and more prevalent than you think. So that's the Stoic way of thinking. Anybody know any Stoics today? People who think that um, we are just part of this grand system? I know plenty of them. So now, if a, the Stoic was right in how he viewed the universe, then what would the point of life be? The Epicurean, his point in life was to make the most the Stoic, if the Stoic was right, then what would be the purpose of life? If you're part of this grand universal God, the purpose of life then would be to live in harmony with the world around you. If you are part of this big divine system, then the point of life would be to live in harmony with the universe around you. Right? Because you are part of God. And God is part of you. Right? Let the force be with you. See the connections there? And so these were the Stoics and these were the Epicureans and this is how they thought. These were the two groups that Paul encountered here in the marketplace. And then going to verse 18, they conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And that word babbler literally means seed picker. And it had to do, uh, it, was, it, was, it was trying to describe a, a bird that was picking seeds. And, and it was really an insult because what it's basically saying is what you're saying is so... Uh, incomprehensible. It's like a bird picking seeds. What you're saying is just nonsense, right? It was a, this was a, an insulting way to refer to the Apostle Paul. Which, by the way, this reminds us. By and large, the most common reaction to the Gospel is mocking. People will not respect you when you say the Gospel to them. Non-believers will not think more highly of you when you share your faith with them. The most common reaction to the Gospel is mocking and jeering. If they mock the Apostle Paul, they certainly mock us. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that the, that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are lost. So some of them say, what does this babbler wish to say? They're, they're uh, dismissing him. Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So some of them completely dismissed Paul. Others completely misunderstood Paul. He seems to be preaching foreign deities. Notice that's plural because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So basically what they were saying was they thought that Paul was preaching about two gods, two foreign divinities. One was named Jesus. The other was named the resurrection. You see, that's how much they misunderstood what Paul was saying. They totally didn't get what Paul was saying, which is to be expected. You ever had um, somebody who is a, of a completely different faith than you listen to your explanation of your faith and they completely don't get it? I've had that happen to me. Which is why Paul has spent so much time in Thessalonica explaining and reasoning to make sure that the, the tenets of the faith are explained properly and understood properly. To this day, most Muslims think that the Christian Trinity is God the Father, Jesus the Son, and Mary. That's how much they misunderstand. And so, um, this is to be expected. They totally misunderstand what Paul is saying. They think he's preaching about one God named Jesus and another God named Resurrection. So verse 19, they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what the new teaching is that you are presenting. So they don't arrest Paul. This isn't Philippi. They're not going to beat him and throw him in jail. But they take him and they bring him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was sort of the central administration building in Athens. It was named after the, uh, the Greek god Ares. You see it in the name there, Areopagus. The, uh, the Latin name for the Greek god Ares was Mars, which is where we get Mars Hill. So they take him to Mars Hill or to the Areopagus, and they say, we're curious. We want to hear more. Will you explain more to us? So um, he, does, he, does just, we, he does just this. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Verse 20, For some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. So they're curious. They want to know more. Verse 21, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So they're very curious, which is a good thing, because that opens the door for Paul to share the Gospel with them. But there is a limit to curiosity. Paul will later on warn Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 to avoid idle babble. And so there's a limit to that. There's a, there's a time when curiosity needs to be replaced by faith. But for the time being, they're, they're curious, and Paul takes advantage of their curiosity to go and to preach the Gospel to them. So now, beginning in verse 22, Paul is going to preach the Gospel to this group of, of people, Stoics and Epicureans, philosophers. And what he's going to say to them is going to be particularly helpful for us. Because what Paul is going to say to them, he's going to give this speech in which he gives the Gospel to intelligent, knowledgeable, educated people who have rejected the authority of Scripture. So he's not in the synagogue, so Paul can't say, open up your Bibles to Genesis 1. Let's start in Genesis 1. Or, or he can't take them to the Isaiah scroll and say, let's see what Isaiah says about the coming Messiah. Because they do not accept the Christian Scriptures or the Jewish Scriptures in any way. But it's also different from what he did in Lystra. Because in Lystra, he was also talking to pagans. But the pagans he was talking to in Lystra were a much more primitive type of culture. Here, Paul is talking to intelligent, informed, educated people 
who have completely rejected the Scriptures. So how is it that you communicate the Gospel to people who are smart, but have completely rejected the authority of the Scriptures? Now before you tune me out and say, this is not relevant to me because I don't know any atheists, let me remind you, or perhaps let me make you aware of the fact, that today, 60% of Alamance County residents claim either non-Christian faith or no faith. 60%. 6 out of 10, 3 out of every 5 Alamance County residents claim no Christian faith or, or non-Christian faith or no faith at all. 3 out of 5 people that live here. So, if 3 out of 5 people that live here in this county reject Scripture altogether, what do you think the chances are that some of the people you know and some of the people you encounter are among that three out of five. Probably pretty good. So this is relevant for us today. We've already seen that the people Paul is talking to, we've already seen how this is basically people today. The majority of the population today thinks either like an Epicurean or a Stoic. The majority of the population today thinks that life is either all about what I make of it, or it's some mystic idea of an afterlife that we don't really understand and we're all sort of divine and we're just sort of making our own divinity. The majority of people believe in one of those two ways. In addition to that, the majority of people in this county reject the authority of Scripture. Therefore, the way that Paul is going to reason the Gospel to them, I would suggest to you, is very relevant. So he begins in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. Let's just pause right there. He says, I've observed that you are very religious. Now, in one sense, that's very clear. Because in every direction Paul looks, there's a reminder of the idolatry that's there. But in another sense, Paul is being very perceptive here. Paul is being just like George Lucas in the sense that he understands that spirituality is non-optional. That all people are spiritual people. You don't have the choice of whether to be spiritual or not so spiritual. All people are spiritual and all people are religious. And so he says, I have seen the evidence of your religiousness. It's all around me. The markers, the temples, all of this speaks to me that you are a religious people, you are worshiping the creation around you. You are either worshiping the things in life because you believe that life is about making the most of it. And so you're worshiping the things of this life. Or you're worshiping the universe itself. You're worshiping the created things thinking that they are divine and you are divine in this sort of mixed up way. But either way, you're doing the same thing. You are religious and you are worshiping, but you're worshiping creation. You have this desire, you have this aching need to know your Creator. And you're trying to worship Him, only you're worshiping Him. You're not worshiping Him, you're worshiping creation. You have this thirst. You have a thirst to know God. All people have a thirst to know God. You know... Um, What's the point of a thirst? What's the purpose of being thirsty? 
let you know you need something, right? Thirst lets you know that your body needs water. You ever get thirsty and try to quench that thirst with soda? Because it's sweet and it tastes good going down? And then you find out that it doesn't quench the thirst? That's what the Athenians are doing. They're thirsty to know the living God. And they're trying to quench their thirst with something that's sweet going down. But it's not quenching their thirst to know God because they're worshiping the evidence of God. They're not worshiping God, they're worshiping the evidence of Him all around them. And so, Paul says to them, I see that you are very religious or pass along and observe the objects of your worship. I wonder what the Apostle Paul would say to us if he were here today. I wonder if Paul came here today to Elon and spent a week or so here and spent a few days down at the university observing the students, watching them, maybe going to some classes and listening, maybe observing our entertainment, watching our television, listening to our radio, going to our sporting events, maybe going down to the mall and watching people walk around. I wonder what Paul would say to us this morning. Men of Elon, I see that you are a very religious people. And I see this because I've seen your objects of worship. I've seen the temple to the sports god that you call the the Greensboro Coliseum and how you go there and worship the God called ACC. I've seen your temple to entertainment. I've seen how you prostrate yourself before the God of flat screen television. I've seen how you prostrate yourself before the God of technology. I've seen your pictures. I've seen how you dress. And I've seen the pictures that you look at. And I've seen how it is that you worship the God of sexual gratification. I've watched how you've entertained yourself. And I've, and I've watched you as you've gone to the temples of the bars. And I've seen how you've worshipped the God called escapism. I see how you've worshipped food. And how you've worshipped sports. And how you've worshipped entertainment. And how you've worshipped vacation and how you've worshipped all these things that are in the creation. I see that you are a religious people. Making the most of this life. Worshipping the God of pleasure. But others, I also see how you also worship the God of the universe around you. Thinking that you yourself are somehow divine. And you just simply need to plug in and connect into the divinity within you. I've seen how you worship yourself. But all of this thirst that you have to know God, it has not led you to a knowledge of Him. Verse 22, For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. In those days, of course, they believed that if these gods were real, that they had the ability to strike people down at any any moment's notice if you didn't pay them proper homage. And so just in case they forgot one, in case we missed one, here's an altar, here's a temple to the unknown God just to cover that in case we missed it. You know, by the way, I know lots of people that live their life with an altar to the unknown God in their life as well. 
unknown God in their life is called the God of Christmas and Easter. And just in case He exists, just in case He's real, I'll come and I'll pay homage to Him at Christmas and Easter. Maybe Mother's Day too. So, the temple to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Here's what Paul is saying to them. All of, all of this around you, this thirst inside of you, to know this God, to worship Him, and to give Him worship, and to be in relationship with Him, which is your purpose, all of this has not led you to know Him because you cannot know Him without the direction of His Scriptures. And so I'm here to proclaim to you how it is that you can know Him. I'm sure this probably has happened to you like it happened to me once. Years ago, I had an important meeting with a client and with a customer of a client. And um, this meeting was about um, something that this customer was about. And um, I was going to meet here and there was, a, there was a manufacturer representative flying in from out of town and we were all supposed to meet in this person's home and find a resolution to this problem. And so this person was quite unhappy and so we had a meeting set up for 2 o'clock and he'd given me his address and I'd printed out directions to his house and I'd looked through the directions and I thought I was familiar with the area and um, I set out in plenty of time to be here. I should have been here early. And um, set out in plenty of time, took the directions and sort of laid them on the front seat thinking that I basically knew where I was going. So I go down the interstate, get off on such and such exit, turn left, and I'm going down looking for a certain road and I don't see the road. I don't see the road, and I keep going. And all of a sudden, now I'm out in the country. And all of a sudden, now nothing is looking familiar, and I still don't see this road. And I'm looking at my watch, and now it's quarter of two, and I'm getting a little nervous. And so finally I say, I'm going to stop and ask somebody, because somebody that lives around here should be able to tell me where this road is. So I stopped and asked somebody, and, and they're like, yeah, I think that that's that road right over there. Up there, go up this way. So I go up that way, and it's not. Still don't find the road. And now it's five minutes to two. And I'm getting really nervous. So I stop again, figuring somebody that lives here has to know where this road is that I'm looking for. So I ask somebody else, and they say, oh, you missed it. It's back that way. Go back that way. So then I go back that way again. Now it's two o'clock. Still don't see. It was only then that I picked up the directions and read them carefully and saw that instead of making a left off the interstate, I was supposed to make a right. And you see, the whole time, people that lived there that I thought should have known how to tell me to get there, couldn't. It was only the written instructions that could tell me how to find it. The Athenians think that all this dialoguing and all this question and answer that they do in the Areopagus, they think that because we live here, we can tell each other how to find God but it is only the written instructions of God that give us direction to, them, to Him. And so this is what Paul says to them. This unknown God, I'm going to proclaim Him to you. Now Paul doesn't mean that God is the same thing as this unknown God they've been worshiping. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to proclaim to you the true God from the Scriptures. Now he's not going to use Scriptures because they don't accept Scriptures anyway, but everything he's going to say is going to be very scriptural. So, um, what you therefore worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, 
nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on earth, on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. Essentially what Paul is saying there is, the revelation of God is all around you. The revelation of God is all around you. Everywhere you look, you see the revelation of God you cannot get away from. Most of us are probably familiar with the American Revolution to some point, but we're less familiar with the French Revolution. I think that sometimes we think that the French Revolution was sort of the French version of our American Revolution because it occurred some just ten years later. And so we think that the French Revolution was all about French freedom and that sort of thing. Nothing could be further from the truth. The French Revolution was nothing like the American Revolution. It wasn't about freedom. The French Revolution was driven by a deep desire of an atheistic French culture to rid their culture of all evidence of Christianity. It was fueled by a hatred of Christian ideas and a hatred of the Christian faith. And so after the guillotines and after they'd kind of gotten rid of the old monarchies, the new government takes, play, takes, takes, uh, takes their place and they begin to erase from all society all evidence of God. They expelled the priests. The priests had to leave the country. They seized all the church property, all the churches, all the cathedrals. The government seized them. They seized uh, many of the uh, religious paintings and, and masterpieces and destroyed a lot of them. They, uh, they changed the week. Many people don't know this. They changed the week from a seven-day week to a ten-day week because the seven-day week was based in Genesis 1. So they said, we're going to get rid of that. We're going to go to a ten-day week. We want nothing to do with God. And in this period, there's a saying that became popular among the French Christians, and it went like this. You can expel our priests, you can seize our churches, but you cannot pull the stars from the sky. You can expel our priests, you can seize our churches, but you cannot pull the stars down from the sky because the revelation of God is all around you. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Paul says to them, the revelation of God is all around you. You cannot get away from it. Verse 27, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him, yet He is actually not far from each one of us. The purpose of of the revelation of God and the creation around us is to cause us to want to know Him, to seek Him. But of course, we can't find Him unless He reveals Himself to us. This analogy doesn't work as well today as it used to, but because today our televisions are, are all driven by cable. But a few years ago, wasn't that long ago, that television signals came to us through the air. Remember those days? Television signals used to come to us through the air. And so everywhere around you were these signals passing through the air. And those signals contained all of the data that your television needed to show you color pictures and give you sound. And those signals were all around you. You couldn't get away from them. Yet without the television to interpret those signals for you, you had no idea what was on TV, did you? You couldn't lick your finger and hold your finger up in the air and say, oh, the Ed Sullivan show is on. You needed the television to take those signals and tell you what they meant and show you what they meant. 
And that's what Scripture does. That's what Paul is proclaiming to them now. I'm here to tell you. The revelation of God is all around you, and here's what it means. It means that God exists and that He wants to know you. You were born to have relationship with Him. You were born to worship Him. Then verse 28, For in Him we, we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, we are indeed His offspring. Now Paul quotes here from two Greek poets. Neither one of them had anything to do with Christianity, and neither one of these poems is even vaguely Christian. And so Paul is quoting from their poems not to say, look, here, here's the belief in God in your own poems. What he's doing is he's just building a bridge with them. He's just making a connection with them from something that they already hold in their own culture. And he's just finding a point in their own culture to launch from into the Gospel. In Him we live and move and have our own being. That's a poem. That's a stoic poem about how in the universe we have our being. You know, It has nothing to do with God. And then the next one for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, Paul's not saying that we are all children of God. Because God is our Creator, we are His offspring. But God has a fatherly relationship with all people. He has a fatherly relationship with His Son and those who are united to His Son by faith. But, being God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. You cannot design God. You cannot define God. You cannot choose who God will be. You cannot choose how God will be. Because God is not a making of your own. You can't represent Him in your artwork. You, you, can't, you can't confine Him to your temples and to your altars. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. So, if the Epicurean way of thinking was true, then what all Athenians should do is make the most of life. If the Stoic way of thinking was true, then what the Athenians should do is endeavor to live in harmony with the world around them. But if what Paul proclaims is true, then you had best repent. Because if there is a Creator God, and He has created you, and He is sovereign over your life, then you owe Him your worship, you owe Him your devotion, you owe Him your loyalty, you owe Him your repentance. Paul says, the evidence of this is all around you. And you know it to be true. Paul will later on write to the Romans in Romans chapter 1. He'll say much of the same things there. But there he goes on to say, not only is the revelation of God all around you, not only is that true, but it's also true that you've understood it. And you've gotten it. Paul will say in uh, Romans chapter 1 that um, the, uh, although that we knew God, we did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in our thinking. We, we claim to be wise, but we exchange the truth of God for a lie. Perceiving that God had created us and we owed Him worship, perceiving that and knowing that, we nevertheless exchange the truth of God for a lie. So what Paul says is, no one will meet God and say, I didn't know you existed. I didn't know you were real. Because not only is the revelation of God all around them, but they also get it as well. So if this be true, you are called to repentance. 
Now these are some pretty grand claims that Paul is making. What sort of proof, what sort of evidence does he have to offer? Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The resurrection from the dead, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is proof that what I'm saying to you is true, says Paul. Now, we have talked at length about the presenting of the Gospel in the book of Acts and how the Gospel is not presented until it's explained. Until we, we um, explain the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, that's the core message of the Gospel. And so the Gospel is not just simply telling people you need Jesus. The Gospel is explaining the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the reasons behind that. And so we might want to look at this and say, well, Paul never mentions the cross. He didn't give him the full Gospel. But we know, first of all, that Luke is probably just summarizing what Paul says. But even beyond that, even if Paul doesn't mention the cross, how can he talk to them about a resurrected Messiah if he hasn't talked to them about a Messiah who died? So implied in here, definitely in here, is the message of a suffering Messiah who came and on their behalf suffered and died for them and has now risen from the grave. He has given them the full Gospel. Now verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. You know, lots of times people are willing to hear what we have to say about our faith claims until we call them to action. Until we say, alright, now it's time to act on this. And then... That's a different story. So when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Again, that is the most common reaction to the Gospel by unbelievers. Mocking, foolishness. Again, Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. So most did not believe, some did, a few did. Which, the Scriptures tell us, even if one believes, and even if one repents, then there is celebration in heaven. So Paul explains the Gospel to them, most of them rejected, some believe, and a small church here is born in Athens. What I want to do now, in just a final minute or two, I just want to reemphasize four points that we learned Four things that we see from Paul's presentation of the Gospel to intelligent people who have rejected the authority of Scripture. Four things that we see. And the first thing that we see is the most common result is we are mocked. The most common result is rejection of the Gospel. Are you ashamed of the Gospel? Are you ashamed of a Gospel that is not people need Jesus, but instead it is God suffered for you and died on your behalf. You killed God and He rose from the grave. Are you ashamed of that Gospel? Because you know what? I know a lot of Christians who are. I know a lot of Christians who would much rather the Gospel be you need Jesus. Jesus can help you. Are you willing to be a fool for the Gospel? Are you willing for people to think less of you? Are you willing for people to think you're an idiot for believing what you believe? The most common reaction to the Gospel is rejection. Secondly, let's remind ourselves that everyone is seeking God. Everyone is seeking God. 
A lot of people deny that. A lot of people say, I don't want anything to do with God. A lot of people say that is foolishness. But everyone in their heart needs to know Him. Everyone in their heart has a thirst to know and to worship the true living God. But here is just, I think, a picture of the misery of lostness. Can you imagine what it is like? Maybe you can. Can you imagine what it is like to need the very thing you hate? Can you imagine what it is like for your life to not be complete while it's missing the one thing that you hate the most? That's the misery of lostness. People need the Lord. People need to know Him. People need to have a relationship with Him. And yet they hate Him. Can you love people who hate your God? Can you love people who hate you because of your God? That's the second thing that we see. The third thing that we see is that no one finds God unless we show them. No one stumbles upon God. No one finds God by accident. No one finds God at the beach watching the waves come in. Nobody finds God watching the stars at night. People find God through the Gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ, Romans 10.17. And so, never forget that people find the Gospel in God when you tell them the Gospel. And then lastly, the last point real quickly is sincerity does not save. The Athenians were very sincere in their pursuits. Right? Verse 21 tells us that every single day they gathered in the Areopagus to talk about these things and to discuss these things. They were very sincere in their beliefs. Muslims are very sincere in their beliefs. Atheists can be very sincere in their unbeliefs. But sincerity does not save. I think that sometimes we can be lulled into thinking that those who sincerely believe in a false gospel are still somehow children of God just by virtue of their sincerity. It's easy to kind of think that. But this reminds us that sincerity saves no one. It's the gospel of Christ that saves us.